Well, this is a difficult passage. And there are several factors that make this section of Paul's letter to the church at Corinth particularly challenging. First, we are separated by a great cultural distance from some of the things that Paul's talking about. Generally speaking, we in the West no longer assign great meaning to the things that someone wears on their head. We just simply read a passage like this and we are aware of just how far this feels from where we live. Second, I think most of us have been raised in a world where some of this passage's assumptions about gender no longer seem very plausible or at least intuitive to us. And finally, I think this passage is different, difficult because some of the things that Paul says here are simply difficult to understand. Uh, perhaps he'd already talked through some of these issues with the, the Corinthians while he was there in Corinth planting the church. Here it seems like at places he's almost using a kind of shorthand to bring to mind more extensive teaching that they might have heard in the past. But in any event, we have before us a passage that requires careful consideration and I think a restrained approach. And so we need to work through it carefully, making sure that we emphasize the things that are most clear and important and don't get waylaid by things that seem more obscure and confusing. And I'm aware that this passage is going to be one that says things to us that might be difficult for some of us to hear. And once we do the hard work of figuring out just what it is that this passage is saying to us, we may, as I just said, find that what it's teaching is a view of the world that, that contradicts some of our most basic assumptions. And in that case, it seems to me that we can identify sort of four different ways that we might respond to the truths of this text. At first, you might be totally fine with it. You can see that this is what God is saying in his word. It seems right to you, and so you're ready to go. Second, you might be fine with it, but on some level, if you're being honest, it does seem a little odd to you. You realize that this is God speaking to you in his word. You've come to accept it. You've come to embrace that it's good. But if you're being honest, again, it's not obvious to you. It's not intuitive what this passage teaches. Third, you might see what God's saying in his word and you acknowledge that God knows better than you do, that his ways are above and beyond your ways, but you find it really hard to accept what it's saying. It just doesn't seem right to you. And so you find yourself having to work to understand and embrace these truths from Scripture. The fourth position that I can imagine is simple rejection. You see what God's word says, but if it comes down to it, you're going to choose your own thoughts over God's. You're going to choose your ways over his. You're going to see yourself as the one who's best positioned to determine what is right and wrong. And so, brothers and sisters, here's the thing. The, the first three positions that I just described are all Christian positions. There is room in our church for that entire range of perspective. So long as we're committed to bringing our thinking in line with what God's word says. What we can't accept is a perspective that puts man's judgment above God's, a perspective that puts God's word on trial. We have to insist that God's word always evaluates us, never the other way around. So let's try and figure out what this passage is saying, and then we'll try to apply it to our lives faithfully. And what I'd like to do is try to answer four questions that arise out of our text. I think if we answer these questions, we'll have a pretty good sense of what it is that Paul's saying here. So the first question, what is the meaning of the head covering that Paul's talking about? 
there in verse 2, Paul praises the church for the way that they're remembering him, most likely meaning that they're honoring and remembering his teaching. And he also praises them for maintaining the traditions, or that word could be translated practices, that he's handed down to them. Now, this is a bit of the old iron fist in a velvet glove approach, because Paul is about to launch into four chapters worth of rebuking the Corinthians for all the ways they're not actually remembering him and honoring the practices and traditions he handed down. He's going to rebuke them over the next four chapters for all sorts of behavior that's going on in their public gathering. And it seems like there's three issues particularly that, that Paul is bothered by when it comes to how the Corinthians are conducting themselves uh, when they gather for worship. There's scandalous conduct at the Lord's Supper, which, uh, Lord willing, we will consider when we get to the second half of chapter 11. There's also sort of total pandemonium breaking out in the way people were exercising uh, spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy in the church gathering. You see that addressed in chapters 12 through 14. And then the third issue is the one considered in our passage for this morning, where we see him addressing the issue of whether men should participate in the worship gathering with their heads covered, and whether women should participate with their heads uncovered. He launches into that concern there in verses 4 and 5, where we read this. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, so what are we talking about? Well, as with most things regarding the specifics of this passage, these things feel very distant from our time and our practices. Uh, There is an evangelical scholar, a man named Bruce Winter, who's something of an expert in the way that these kinds of ancient cultural practices are reflected in the New Testament texts. And here... There are some data points that he has that that he sort of pulled out and identified in some of his writings that might help us understand what was going on in Corinth. Uh, First, uh, Winter shows that there was a significant movement in the Roman world that can be dated roughly from 100 B.C. to 100 A.D. So this covers the period of time in which 1 Corinthians was written. And Winters calls this development the appearance of, quote, new women. That is to say, this period of history saw significant changes in Roman society, where a different kind of woman came to social prominence. Instead of the virtuous and chaste mother who had previously been the sort of cultural ideal for influential women, uh, these upper-class new women had very loose sexual morals and were comparatively less interested in family life. These women were more independent from their husbands, more engaged in social life uh, outside the home. And Winter shows that it's very likely that these kinds of women, these new women, uh, were present in the communities to which Paul wrote his letters. So that's one data point. Another one, it's also important to know that some Roman men of high status uh, at this time made a practice of pulling their togas up over their heads when they were praying or offering sacrifices in the pagan temples. Another data point that might be helpful. We know in the Roman context, a woman would wear a veil or a covering of some sort over her head to indicate that she was married. It showed that she was committed to another. It was a sign of respect for her husband's authority. If a woman chose not to clothe herself in this way, it was a sign either that she was an adulteress or that she was a prostitute. 
Roman law indicated that if a woman was an adulteress, uh, she was to have her head shaven. Paul seems to be referring to that kind of humiliation uh, in verse 5. And she'd be forbidden from wearing the veil over her head. She'd be forbidden from sort of uh, presenting herself as a chaste and faithful wife in public. These new women, however, had begun to embrace the sexual liberties in which the upper middle class and upper class Roman men indulged. Basically, in those days, it was acceptable for a man to be unfaithful in all sorts of ways. And these women seem to have been saying, hey, we want that same experience. We want those same privileges. And so to sort of stake their claim to the the right to be immoral, uh, these women had thrown off the practice of wearing the traditional veil as well. So if you piece all those data points together, it seems that some of the women in the Corinthian church might have been adopting these practices. So Winter writes this in one of his books. He says this, By deliberately removing her veil, while playing a significant role of praying and prophesying in the activities of Christian worship, the Christian wife was knowingly flouting the Roman legal convention that epitomized marriage. It would have been self-evident to the Corinthians that in so doing, she was sending a particular signal to those gathered. So the, the women who were showing up in the Corinthian gathering, praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered, that might mean nothing to us living in 21st century Northern Virginia. But, but Winter reminds us that that was a very clear signal uh, to the church in Corinth, something that they would not have misunderstood. And so in light of all that, Paul tells men not to cover their heads in worship. But he tells wives that they absolutely should. And so as we seek to bring this into our world and apply it to our lives, I think it's important to distinguish between the principle that Paul's putting in place and the way that that principle gets lived out in a particular cultural context. I think the principle is fairly clear. Don't adopt the world's pagan and promiscuous practices and bring them into the corporate worship of the church. Or to state it positively, choose to conduct yourself in a way that shows that you affirm behavior understood to be appropriate for Christians. There in verse 16, Paul talks about having no such practice in all the churches. Don't conduct yourself in a way that's so uh, disconnected and discordant from the sort of practice of Christians, the way we understand morality to work, that that what you do has no other sort of parallel in any other church. You don't want to be found with someone saying, there's no church out there that does what you're doing. In our gatherings, we should behave in ways that are distinct from the world around us. We want to be shaped by the gospel and its values rather than the priorities of the world. There in verse 4, Paul assumes the Corinthians will agree with him that the Roman men pulling the toga up over their head is absurd. And so he says, in the same way, wives should keep wearing their veils. Don't show off how sophisticated and how liberated you are by adopting the dress and posture of upper-class women who want to sleep around. So as followers of Christ, we want to embrace that principle. Even as we acknowledge the specific way that we live it out in our context is going to vary. Head coverings don't have that same meaning in our culture. In fact, on the streets of Sterling Park, it's far more likely that if you wear a head covering as a woman, someone will mistakenly think that you're a worshiper of Allah 
We don't insist on head coverings for women because that's not how we live out Paul's principle in our culture. But when we gather, we understand that we are to be a distinct people, displaying not the values of the world outside, but the values of Jesus' kingdom. Okay, so that's what's going on with respect to head coverings. And if that's all that Paul said, this passage might seem a bit odd to us, but it wouldn't be all that remarkable. But he says a lot more. And so the next question we need to ask is this. What is Paul saying about the difference between men and women? Between husbands and wives? Let's start there with verse 3. We read there. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Then in verses 7 to 12, if you skip down there, we read this. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Okay, so this passage is slightly complicated by the fact that Greek, the language that Paul was writing in, has one word that means both woman, of sort of speaking of all females, and wife. In the same way, there's one word that means both man, male, generically, and also husband. So we have to let the context determine which one is intended. When Paul uses this word, does he mean men in general or husbands specifically as a subset of men? Does he mean women in general or wives, married women, uh, as a subset? We have to let context determine which is intended. And I think the translators of the English Standard Version do a pretty good job uh, serving us in that regard. And so we need to pull out Paul's sort of governing principle regarding the relationship between men and women, and then we can think about questions and objections that we might have about it. And what seems clear is that Paul understands that there is a way in which a husband has authority in his marriage relationship. You see that in verse 3 where Paul says that a husband is the head of his wife. That word head is ground zero for a lot of debates, not all of which are important for us this morning. Uh, the matter is further complicated by the way Paul seems to use the word both literally to mean the, the physical head that's stuck on your neck, and also at this time, as a, at times in this passage, uh, he uses the word head as, as a word picture. Here in verse 3, the term is clearly being used in that sense, metaphorically. A husband's not the literal and physical head on his wife's shoulders, nor is Christ the literal and physical head on a man's body. But there is a diversity of opinion about just what exactly Paul is trying to indicate by using that word as a picture of a husband's relationship to his wife. Some say that it indicates the concept of authority. So the head coach on a basketball team is the one who has the authority. It seems clear this is what Paul is intending to communicate in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. If you remember there, he talks about wives submitting to their husbands because the husband is the head of the wife. Others say that the word head here has the sense of being a source, just as the head is the, the source of a river. That makes some sense in light of verse 8, where Paul reminds us of the fact that at creation, Eve was created from Adam's rib. 
In that sense, man is the source of woman. In that sense, a husband is the source of his wife. Still others say here that the word head indicates prominence. After all, the head sits atop the body and receives the most attention of all of our body parts. I think we have to let context determine which of those readings is correct. And I think that all three can be somewhat in play. But the passage makes it clear that Paul is indicating that there is some kind of relationship of hierarchy and authority between husbands and wives. You see that in verse 10, where Paul talks about wives having a symbol of authority on her head. It's simply saying that a wife ought to demonstrate in culturally appropriate ways that she is under her husband's authority, that she recognizes him as her head. Even as she prays and prophesies in public, something that otherwise might give the impression that she's sort of independent of her husband. Now Paul says in verse 10 that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's a bit strange and a little bit difficult to figure out what Paul means. It could be that Paul's conscious of the fact that worship gatherings like these are attended by angelic observers. That when the church gathers to worship, we are being observed by heavenly beings. And so it could be that he's saying to wives, look, be aware of your conduct in light of the fact that that you're being observed. Your actions, your attitudes are being watched. Well, there's another explanation. Uh, That word that's translated here as angel, again, it's just the Greek word for messenger. And oftentimes in the Bible, uh, this word is used of just human messengers carrying a message. Uh, The scholar that I mentioned a bit earlier, Bruce Winter, has shown that the Emperor Augustus uh, in the first century was very concerned about the rise of these new promiscuous women in Roman society. And so he passed a law saying that married women when they were participating in worship in the temples, had to wear a veil. Right? He was sort of cracking down uh, and, and insisting that women wear veils in religious ceremonies. And, and Winter also shows that there seems to be indication that the, the Roman government would actually send out observers, spies, uh, to go out and make sure that women were obeying this custom. And so it could be, it's possible, uh, that Paul is aware of the presence of these kinds of messengers in the church gatherings. And he wants to make sure the Corinthians are being above reproach when it comes to the law. But in any event, whatever the correct explanation here, what is clear is that a wife, by virtue of being a wife, uh, is under her husband's authority and ought to wear a symbol of it. You also see something of a hierarchy in the way that Paul talks about the wife being the glory of her husband there in verse 7. The idea of being someone's glory is is best understood as as showing the excellency of someone. And so it's understood that that glory, or in verse 5 even dishonor, flows from a wife to her husband. A wife who is virtuous, who is righteous, reflects well on her husband and uh, in so doing is his glory. I think what Paul's saying is that uh, husbands have a certain authority in a marriage relationship that a wife ought to recognize and and ought to live in light of. And again, I recognize that there's probably a diversity of responses to that idea in our congregation. And so with the rest of our time this morning, what I'd like to do is just raise a couple of challenges or questions or objections that you might be entertaining. 
Again, I think the main thrust of this passage is fairly clear. Paul wants us, as we gather in the church, to, to reflect properly ordered relationships, not to sort of imbibe the world's approach to things and bring it into the, the church, but rather to reflect in the way that we conduct ourselves, uh, that we believe and affirm God's plan for our lives. And so again, with the rest of our time, I'd like to raise a couple of questions or challenges or objections uh, that you might be entertaining. Uh, the first one is, is Paul saying here that there are real and important differences between men and women? Is Paul saying that there are real important differences between men and women? I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I, the answer, I think, is unavoidably yes. I think that would have been an unremarkable statement for pretty much all of the previous millennia of human existence. But in the past couple of decades, we've begun to lose our confidence. It is popular to believe that there are no real differences between men and women, that gender is purely a social construct, devoid of any sort of significant meaning, completely arbitrary and profitably upended. But here, God's word tells us that men and women have different roles, different relationships, different responsibilities, based on nothing other than the fact that they're different genders. That is to say, there are some things that men are supposed to do that women are not supposed to do. And there are some things that women are supposed to do that men are not to do. And there's no other reason for that other than the intention and design and plan and desire of God as he's communicated it to us in his word. And so we as followers of Christ should seek to live out and honor and even embrace those differences, trusting that God knows better than we do. Just as a quick aside, this is one of the reasons that Christians cannot affirm the idea of marriage between men or marriage between women. It's not just that homosexual intercourse is sinful, though it is, but rather there is something right at the heart of marriage in the way that God designed it. There's something right at the heart of marriage that only a male and a female can live out together. The parts of a marriage are not interchangeable. They can't be swapped out without losing the thing itself. Paul is saying here that there are clearly important, real differences between men and women, between husbands and wives. Okay, so second question, second objection. Is Paul saying men are better than women? We are carefully conditioned by our culture to think that any difference based on gender must be oppressive or degrading. And so we might be tempted to think here that Paul's words are actually harmful and dangerous to women. But I think that fails to take what Paul's saying here seriously. It is very clear that he affirms the Bible's teaching that men and women are equal in dignity. Again, look there in verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You see, in the Lord, men and women, husbands and wives, are not at war with each other. 
Their interests are not opposed to one another. This isn't a zero-sum game where the prosperity of one means loss for the other. The tension that exists between the genders was introduced at the fall. It's not part of the way God created the world. It's not hardwired into the differences between men and women. Opposition and resentment between men and women is, in that sense, not natural. Paul sees that men and women are connected together in significant ways. He says, woman was made from man. Again, a reference to the fact that in the creation narrative, God creates Eve from Adam's rib. But now, Paul says, men are made from women. Each male is born from a female mother. And so there is no superiority. There is no domineering. There is no lording it over each other. But as Paul says there at the end of verse 12, all things come from God. Again, this is picking up what we see in the creation narrative where both men and women are made by God in his image. And so both men and women find their calling and their purpose in the Lord and in his will for their lives and in his design for their gender. Neither of them is independent of God. Neither of them is independent of each other. Paul is saying there are very real differences, but he's He's not saying that men are better than women. If we misunderstand this, it's probably because we misunderstand the nature of authority. We oftentimes think of authority as something to be resisted or resented or limited. Right? Authority is what people use to oppress and exploit those who are underneath them. And there are good reasons why we think that, right? Some governments exploit their position in order to maintain power and line their pockets. Some police officers have used their power, their authority, to terrorize innocent people. Some husbands use their authority to mistreat their wives. Some of you grew up in homes where your parents' authority was used to harm and control you. Even in the church, there's a popular podcast out now that documents in horrifying detail the ways that leaders of a well-known, prominent church used their authority to control and exploit the members of the church. So it's not for nothing that we're suspicious of authority. We have seen it go badly over and over again. And so it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to assume that the problem is with authority itself. But brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear that authority is a very good thing. Yes, in a fallen world, it can be abused. And we as Christians, those of us who know the God who is the ultimate authority, the God who has created all human authority, we as Christians ought to be the most horrified, the most outraged when authority is misused. But properly understood, authority is a wonderful gift like the tracks on which a train is meant to run, or or the instruction manual that tells you how to properly care for your car, authority ought to protect us. It ought to maintain proper order. It ought to make sense of the world for us. It ought to help us to live well. God created the world, and he rules over it with complete authority. And what we see is that God always exercises his authority for our benefit. When God gives his law, it is not oppressive. 
But as the psalmist repeatedly affirms, it is life-giving. God tells us how to live because he knows how he made the world. He knows what we were made to do. He knows what's best for us. And listen, this is important. The God who has authority over all things has ordained that within human society, there will exist certain relationships of sort of under-authority. He's always the ultimate authority, but human beings have been sort of um, appointed by God to exercise authority underneath him. So the authority of a parent over a child is established by the Lord. God tells us in his word, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And the, the Lord established that for the child's benefit for their protection, so that they might learn and grow and flourish. Right, the authority that the Lord has given to an elder in the local church, right, in 1 Peter 5, they're called under-shepherds. Right? Jesus is the chief shepherd. God has given to the church under-shepherds who, who have some measure of authority sort of under him, on his behalf. Well, that authority is always meant to be used in a local church for the spiritual benefit of the church members. The authority of a government, as we saw in Romans 13, is given to it by God. And it's meant to be used for the benefit of the society and the citizens of the nation. And friends, to bring it into 1 Corinthians 11, the God-given authority of a husband in marriage should always be exercised for the benefit of his wife. Sadly, passages like this one have been used to hurt women, to suggest that wives are somehow second-class citizens in their own homes. Some have twisted these ideas to say that women shouldn't be educated or work outside the home or hold positions of authority in the wider world, but Paul never hints at any of those things. Right? Jesus couldn't have been more clear than in Matthew 20 where he tells his disciples, look, the, the, the rulers of the Gentiles... Oh, they love to lord it over the people underneath them. They, they love to exercise authority for their own benefit. But Jesus says, not so with you. Not so amongst my people. That's not how it works with Christian God-ordained authority. For us, Jesus says there in Matthew 20, to be the greatest is to be the least. To be, to be an authority is to be a servant of all. And so what you see in 1 Corinthians 11 is that properly understood Submitting to authority is a, is a magnificent blessing. And it does not in any way diminish our dignity. Again, look back in verse 3. Paul says, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So do you see what that means? A husband has a certain authority in his marriage, but he's also under authority. He's not the boss. He's no more free from the responsibility to submit to God-ordained authority than his wife is. Paul says right there, he is under the authority of Christ. Even the Lord Jesus himself. When the eternal Son of God took on human flesh and became a man, he lived in submission to the authority of his Father in heaven. Jesus makes that perfectly clear in John chapter 6, verse 38. He says, he came from heaven not to do his own will, but he tells us, but to do the will of his heavenly father. 
We even read in Luke chapter 2 that when the Lord Jesus was a child, he submitted himself to the authority of his human parents, even though he was God in human flesh. Jesus' dignity was not diminished in the slightest by being called upon to submit to proper authority. Jesus understood that what it meant to be fully human was to to submit to God-ordained authority. So, brothers and sisters, authority is good. And to be under authority is good. It's no more beneath you to submit to the authorities that God has placed in your life than it was beneath the incarnate Son of God. But here's the thing. The heart of sin is the distrust of God's authority. Right? This is the very first temptation presented to Eve in the garden. Who gets to say? Who's the boss? Who knows best? Who determines what you do? Sin leads us to believe that we can only be happy when we are the final authority in our world. Right? Sin turns the Lord's prayer on its head and teaches us to pray, My will be done. Sin leads us to misuse the authority that we're given by God, not for the reasons we were given it, for the benefit of those we lead, but sin causes us to abuse that authority and use it selfishly. Friends, that's why Paul wants the church to live in this distinct way. If the Corinthians lived in a society that encouraged women to embrace sexual license and to throw off their husband's authority, well, the church was to be conspicuously different. Christians were meant to create a counterculture, a place where God's authority was actually celebrated and embraced. If we live in a culture that similarly can't imagine that gender differences have real meaning and real God-given purpose, well, we too as a church should endeavor to live as a place where those ideas are cherished and affirmed. Okay, so one last question or objection about the passage then. Can't we just say that all of these things are culturally bound? That is to say, aren't these just the ways that people thought about sort of husband and wife, male-female relationships thousands of years ago? Can't we just say that this is an expression of the way things were in the first century? But we've moved on past that. Husbands used to have authority over their wives, but isn't that just something we can say is culturally conditioned? Well, I understand why that might be tempting, but I I don't think ultimately we can conclude that that's the case. And that's because Paul doesn't root his instructions to the church in the way things were in those days. Uh, Instead, I think we can identify four sort of streams of authority in the argument that Paul makes here. Four different reasons why Paul tells us that, that a wife should conduct herself in a way that shows that she's under a husband's authority. Uh, Four different sort of streams of authority that that Paul says we need to bring ourselves in line with. First, he says that these instructions are rooted in custom. Again, if you look there in verse 16, he says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, that is to argue with his point, so maybe you're feeling inclined to be contentious right now, Paul says we have no such practice. The word could mean custom. Uh, nor do the churches of God. That word that's translated as practice or custom, it's more than just a sort of meaningless random habit. Uh, That word has the sense of a repeated action meant to demonstrate and reinforce a principle. So a custom or a practice, it's not quite a law, 
But as one author puts it, a custom, as Paul understands it, is a routine action meant to teach and persuade through example and conditioning. Paul wants the Corinthians to maintain this custom of wives wearing head coverings in order to teach and demonstrate and reinforce the underlying principle of a husband's authority. The second foundation for Paul's teaching here is the idea of propriety. In verse 13, we read this, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Paul's appealing to a sense of what is proper, what is fitting or appropriate or becoming. Uh, this word that Paul uses was actually an important term in classical philosophy. Right? In classical philosophy, the goal of, of life was for each person to figure out how to live in a way that was consistent with who they were made to be, with who they were supposed to be. It, it, propriety, sort of lining and syncing things up. Uh, the, the, fourth, the third foundation of Paul's argument is related to that idea of propriety, but it, it's the idea of nature. Look there in verses 14 and 15. Paul says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So Paul talks here about nature. It's more than simply the prevailing cultural opinion of the day. Instead, nature refers to God's design or his plan for our lives. Paul uses the same word in Romans 1 and again in Romans 2 to indicate that sort of God-given sense of decency that we all have even in a fallen world. Here Paul's appealing to our natural sense, particularly that men ought to look like men and women ought to look like women. There's something unnatural. There's something, to use a word Paul uses, shameful, when men and women confuse and scramble their God-given sexual differences. Now, admittedly, sort of exactly what that looks like changes from culture to culture. Hair length might not mean quite the same thing to us as it did in Paul's day. Right? But we understand... That, that, that men ought to look like men and women ought to look like women. And we also have a sense of what that looks like. So, for example, there's a big difference between a, a man wearing a kilt and a man wearing a sequined ball gown, right? Even though they're both not pants, we understand that one of them is perfectly appropriate for men to wear. It's not sort of flouting a convention. It's not a man trying to look like a woman, Right, if you saw the Olympic opening ceremonies, one of the athletes who came in was in a sort of traditional garb for his, uh, for his culture, right? And it was a, a sort of woven skirt, but he looked very masculine, right? It wasn't at all that he was trying to look like a woman. Uh, the specifics of what that looks like might sort of differ a bit from time to time and place to place, but we know when a man is trying to look like a man, and we know when a woman is trying to look like a woman, so God wants men to look like men because he made them to be men. God wants women to look like women because he made them to be women. And so, again, we need to have some degree of flexibility about what that looks like in our practice. It's no longer masculine uh, for a woman to wear pants. Men can have pierced ears without necessarily trying to appear feminine. But the principle is clear. Nature teaches us that we ought to look like our sex. 
whatever that might mean in our culture. Now, I understand that this idea that there is a nature that we should bring ourselves into conformity with, I understand that that idea is very much under attack. So newly coined pejoratives like heteronormative or cis-normative imply that there's something wrong with the idea that there is something that's natural, that it's natural to be heterosexual or that acting according to your God-given sex is somehow natural. We rebel against the idea that my identity is assigned to me, that my identity is given to me from sort of outside of me. We want the freedom to decide what's right for ourselves. But again, this is nothing new. It's just a, a particular expression of the same thing that was going on in the Garden of Eden. It's the same rebellion against God's authority. Paul says that nature itself teaches us that men should look like men and women should look like women. The fourth foundation of Paul's argument is creation itself. If you look there in verses 8 and 9 again, he says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So there in verse 8, Paul sees a significance in the fact that Adam was created first. In verse 9, he reminds us that God created Eve to help and to complete Adam, not the other way around. And he's saying all of this by way of explaining why it is that a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Male authority in marriage is not just a fad or a cultural construct, but something that Paul sees present at the very creation of man and woman, the very creation of the institution of marriage. Note, before sin enters the world, as part of God's good design. So we can't jettison it as something that simply no longer applies to us as long as we're living in that same created world. Okay, so that's it. There's certainly a lot more we could say about the passage. There are more questions to ask, but I think we've sort of sketched out the important data points. I don't think wives in our congregation need to wear head coverings. They no longer signify what they did in Paul's day. But that larger principle of leadership and submission in marriage still applies to us. And we should seek to live it out in culturally appropriate ways in our world. And brothers and sisters, in so doing, we stand as a countercultural witness to the world. As people who have been saved by the death of Jesus from our spiritually suicidal hatred of God's authority, from the insane notion that we're better off when we're calling our own shots, we ought to live out in our practices together and in the postures of our heart that we understand that God's authority is a good thing. And so let's come to the Lord's table together. Here at the table, we remember that the Lord Jesus submitted himself to his Father's authority all the way to the point of death on a cross. And here at the Lord's table, we are reminded that we have even more reason to trust our God. If you find the idea of submitting to God's way of ordering the world difficult, well, I think, again, that's understandable. The, the current of our wider world, the inclinations of our sin nature all flow against it. But when we see how the Lord Jesus exercises his authority over us, not harshly, not in order to exploit us, but he rules over us with pierced hands, he wears a crown of thorns so that we can be rescued from the tyrannical rule of sin and death, 
Well, perhaps as we come to the table, we can learn to live joyfully under the authority of a head who loved us enough to die for us. And so let's pray and then let's celebrate together. Our gracious Father, we love you and we rejoice in your authority. We rejoice that you have created a world where we're not left to guess who we are and how we ought to live. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you uh, came as a man, that you submitted to the will of your heavenly Father, that you died for us and rose for us. Holy Spirit, would you make us people who are joyfully under authority? Would you help us to exercise authority in whatever capacity we might be called to do so? Would you help us to do it well and in a Christ-like way? Would you help us as a church to be a, a witness and a counterculture in the world in which you've placed us? And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.